Blog Talk Radio. It is Thursday, December 11th, 2014, and welcome to it, kids. 10 p.m. in the east, 7 p.m. out west, 9 p.m. here in Texas, and if you currently are as excited as I am right this second, then you are damned excited. And why are we all excited? Because the 100th episode of Brandon's Buzz begins right now. Kale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for... Absolutely. Anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon, you know I am, and you know, you have to know, that I literally could not be more thrilled to be here to present you with the second half of the Brandon's Buzz 100th episode spectacular. You know, folks who follow me on Twitter closely know what an enormous fan I am, and have been for essentially his entire career, of a living legend of a professional football player called Peyton Manning. Uh, If you don't know that name, he is currently in his third season as the quarterback of the Denver Broncos, following a record-shattering 13-season run, shepherding the Indianapolis Colts to countless winning seasons, to playoff appearances, to playoff wins, to two Super Bowl appearances, to one Super Bowl victory. Now, Peyton Manning is celebrated, quite rightly, as a human marvel a master of his chosen profession. Seriously, that dude has already forgotten more about being a top-shelf NFL quarterback than most players shall ever know. Uh, But he also feels a lot of grief for what are perceived to be his flaws, that he can't win the big game, that he's no good in high-pressure situations, that he's not a great improviser when, when uh, you know, plays don't go as planned or games don't go as planned. Uh, you know, you ask me, I'll tell you that most of these criticisms are at worst ridiculous and at best unfairly placed, but they get tossed in his face and at his name too casually and too often, even by people who profess to admire Manning and his talents. You know, I had the great privilege of actually attending a Broncos game earlier this season, a game that Manning and his team won pretty handily against his old team, the Indianapolis Colts, and I found myself blown away by the negative comments, most of them aimed squarely at Peyton, that I kept hearing from the folks around me in the stands. Folks who were wearing Broncos jerseys or old Manning Colts jerseys, folks who are fans of this man, the most derisive, dismissive comments about how he's certain to choke and he can't win under pressure and all this nonsense. You know, and I'm telling you, when I watch Peyton Manning play his game, be it on television or live in person, I know with neither question nor exception that I am watching a person execute that job regardless of his flaws, who is the finest person to ever execute that job. And that's exactly the way I feel about Michael Logan. You know, among the great joys of doing this job 100 times has been the honor of speaking with a number of journalists who cover the daytime beat primarily. 
from Michael Fairman to Carolyn Hinsey, uh, you know, Michael Maloney, the great Connie Pasolacqua, every one of whom I love and all of whom are worthy of the utmost respect and admiration. But anyone who tells you that in that racket, Logan isn't and hasn't always been the one to beat is either dumb or deluded. Because as I told you all yesterday, as I told you all last night, he is the king. He writes with a voice that is singularly alive with wit, with wisdom, and always with bracing honesty. He has the Rolodex you'd kill, you'd friggin' kill for. His bullshit barometer is very finely tuned. He asks the questions to which you had no idea you even wanted the answers. He's just the best. You know, but then you go on certain message boards and you go on Twitter, and you don't have to excavate very long or dig very deep before you hit paydirt on the rudest, nastiest, most inflammatory and offensive and asinine comments that he's a network shill, that he's too biased to be objective when necessary, that, you know, a thousand different things that these people would never dare say to his face, but that when granted the cloak of anonymity and the cover of darkness that the Internet affords us all, these trolls have no issue whatsoever spouting forth the most vacuous, vicious vitriol. It bothers me just as a fan of Logan's, so I couldn't even begin to fathom how it might affect him. You know, I wanted this 100th episode to be special, and uh, prior to this opportunity falling into my lap, I wondered many, many moons exactly how I wanted to mark this particular milestone. It happened completely by accident, but now that it's done, I couldn't possibly have conjured, I literally couldn't have sat and designed a more fitting demonstration of the very ethos of this program. If you've listened to all 100 installments of Brandon's Buzz, and by the way, if you have, Jesus be with you, all of you. Uh, uh, you know, one thing should be clear above all else, and that is I firmly believe that the American soap opera at its finest and most exemplary is an art form every inch the equal of the novel, of the epic poem, of the abstract painting, of the symphony. And I believe that Michael Logan believes the exact same sentiment. And I believe that he has spent the entire past quarter of a century of his life, and more really, uh, proclaiming and affirming that truth to as many people as are within the sound of his voice and within the range of the broad reach that his status as a member of TV Guide's iconic staff has fortunately afforded him. That goal may seem rather quixotic at times, but if you ask me, I say there is a hell of a lot of nobility in such a pursuit as that, and insofar as one can reasonably have influences in the endeavor of hosting an unassuming podcast, I believe that the unwavering excellence of Logan's example, coupled with his apparent reverence for and love of the long-form conversation, has had as powerful an impact on the essence and evolution of this program at its finest as any other factor that I could pinpoint by name. And the fact that as a result of what you're about to hear, that Michael Logan now knows my name, holy mother of all that is holy, that's enough. And that's enough forever. <sighs> you know, prior to conducting this conversation, my primary objective for this interview was to be able to elicit in as whole a way as possible a sense of what it must be like to be this man. This man who has been so influential to so many who have come up admiring him and his work. This man who seems to be revered and reviled in equal parts of measure. In our private correspondence prior to connecting on the phone to record what I swear I'm about to play for you, I swear I'm almost done. Uh, you know, I told Logan that I would need at most an hour of his time. And some two and a half hours later, when the phone receiver had seemed to become permanently fused to my ear, and that whole entire half of my skull was numb, we were still yakking like the oldest of pals. And even though the entirety of our exchange was ostensibly on the record, 
There are chunks of our conversation that I decided to save just for myself, like Logan's riveting riff on Britta Dixon's boobs, which you just have to trust me when I tell you was priceless. But what remains is something much more compelling than even I would have dared to hope. You know, there was a moment, as happens so often here, I feel fortunate enough to say, there was a moment when I could palpably feel Logan begin to let his guard down a little bit with me, and I couldn't help but be struck by what began to emerge, at least for me, thereafter. This is a man who completely gets it, all sides of it. He gets his importance in his industry. There's no question about that. He understands very clearly that he made his mark in a very tough field, and he understands very clearly how he got that done. But he also projected such gratitude, such a sense of, you know, let's face it, humble is probably not an adjective that any of his critics might choose to describe Michael Logan, but this is a man who gets very deeply and takes care to never forget the role that great good fortune has played in his life and in his career. And while you may take the tack that good fortune is simply nothing more than preparation colliding with the moment of opportunity, you know, all the luck under the moon, after all, is meaningless if you're not ready for your moment when it arrives. Uh, I think there's something to be said for the idea that some of us mere mortals can be star-kissed, and that Michael Logan is very possibly one of those mortals. No matter how hard he tried to convince me, in a sentiment he borrowed from one of his long-ago interview subjects, that ultimately... We are all just bozos on the same bus. <laughs> so let's continue. So, you know, I, you know, I would love to know, looking back over 25 years of your gig, I would love to know if there's a moment, and I'm sure there's 100 moments, but, you know, an interview or an article or a scoop that, uh, you know, you're proudest of when you look back at the breadth of your career. Oh, Wow. Well, I, think I mean, I'm sure Beverly ranks right up there. I'm sure that, you know. Right up there, absolutely. You know, one that, well, I'll tell you, breaking news that I regretted breaking was when I got wind of the fact that ABC was planning to cancel both All My Children and One Life to Live you at bet. the same time. Um, you rocked the whole world with that one. Well, yeah, and like a dumbass, I posted it on <laughs> April 1st, not thinking that, a lot of peeps would think or hope that it was an April Fool's prank. Alas, it wasn't. <laughs> but that was, you know, sadly huge. I remember quite, quite fondly spending some time near the end with Michael Zaslow. And oh. I did a feature that, I mean, it was so close to the end that I went back to New York, went to his house, did the interview, came back, wrote it up quickly, filed it, and I think he died the day I filed it. And wow. I had to turn it into... An obituary of sorts. Yeah. yeah. But I was so moved by him and his, to the very end, pizzazz. I mean, it just, he was still so funny. He couldn't speak. He had a whole bunch of squeakers, like dog toy squeakers, and he'd squeak a banana for something and squeak a dog bone for something else that he could command the house as he always had. I mean, he was <laughs> still in full communication with Susan, his wife, and his daughters, and it was a remarkable thing to see, and yet, of course, so poignant. And he was never without hope. It was a shock that he died as quickly as he did because that was not expected, although, you know. And because he was still working, and he still looked relatively healthy. I mean, considering yeah. his plight, he looked on screen relatively healthy and vital. Yeah. I mean, how great to have him be brought back after, you know, he was cut loose. So, unfortunately, by Guiding Light, but then to have One Life to Live take him and bring him back as his former character there and to work with the ALS was 
again, I mean, like, God, this is what soaps used to do. This is what we used to get. No question. On our daytime TV programs, you know, and that whole story was remarkable. I mean, it was ghastly, but so inspiring as tragedies so often are. And I remember that one very fondly. You know, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, and I'm looking at the book that Susan put together of of Michael's journals after uh, after he passed. And it's, you know, if you read that book from cover to cover, it is a remarkable story. He was a tough son of a bitch, even before he got ill, you know. I mean, he was <laughs> ornery as hell, talented as anybody. So funny, he was one of the first people I met back in the PR company I told you about when I came down there. He was one of the clients from some movie, you know, he was doing. He was like one of the first people I got to know. There's something so colorful about the people in soaps and especially the East Coast crowd. I mean, to have got to hang with Ruth Warwick for crying out loud. I mean, just <laughs> complete lunatic, you know? And Phil Carey. Phil Carey was just the best. There's something about the East Coast breed, though, I think it was particularly unique. And I think with few exceptions, you know, they didn't lose track of the, the stuff of being alive, like all New Yorkers do, you know? I mean, it's hard to get carried away with your damn self when everybody's got to go out on the street and try to catch a cab, you know? I mean, it's just, there's just something about being back there, and so many of them were theater-trained and came from that great heritage of acting, and and they didn't have the huge dreams, you know? They were completely, you know, people like Don Hastings, for example, a lovely actor, was completely happy to be on that show for the end of his days, or as it turned out to be, you know, the end of days, you know, as the world turns his days, but Sure. It was good. It was something to be prideful of, to be employed that long, to be able to have a nice home, some stability, you know? And it, I think in a weird way it created the most interesting breed of people who were very, um, not looking for the next job, not looking to sure. be more famous sure. than they already are, just looking to just be their own damn fabulous selves. And, you know, the characters, I mean, it's just so extraordinary. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure Bob Woods would say the same thing. I'm sure Eileen Fulton would say the same thing. I'm sure, oh, yeah. you know... Dozens and dozens of other people would. Exactly what you're saying. I remember when Betty Davis was a Betty Davis was a huge fan of soaps and especially as the world turns. And I remember her talking about how mesmerized she was with Eileen Fulton and Lisa Brown and those great stars of that time. And if Betty Davis, who's like the greatest thing the movies have ever you know <laughs> have ever produced, can look at soaps and see the great value there, see that that's really what it's about. And back then, it was doing an hour show a day or a, doing live television. And there's nothing compared to what these people have to do now. I mean, the fact that the work is so good now to me is overwhelming. I'm so in awe of these people, and not just the actors, but the writers, the crew, everybody that's got to turn out these shows as fast as they do now with no rehearsal and no retakes. And I defy Meryl Streep or Helen Mirren on on General Hospital with no prep and no retakes and have them just try to outshine more of freaking West, you know? I mean, it's just... Or Laura Wright. Yeah, you know, and that whole bunch. That whole bunch. I took about five of them to lunch. I still have to write up the interview. About it. I kind of had to go into therapy first because it was so uh, <laughs> such a exhausting experience. But I, I took Michelle Stafford, Fanola, Mora, Nancy Gron, and Jane Elliott all to a lunch and let them cut loose. And in addition to being all extremely brilliant actors and, and fantastic people, you know, I was just so struck with how those who hung in the soap world are because 
Look at the work they get to do on General Hospital. And sure. yeah, they didn't get to be big deals in primetime or win Oscars, but they're working, man. And so many people would trade places with them. I remember Jeannie Cooper always used to say when she, you know, when she went on Young and the Restless, which was like 73, all her, you know, of course she'd come up, did the movies and the episodics and all that kind of stuff. And everybody told her she was nuts. Her career was going to be over. How foolish of you to go to a daytime soap opera. My God, how desperate. (laughs) And they'd all trade places with her now to have had that kind of career and fame. And she ate it up like, the best dessert every day. I just love those people that get it and you know, just know they're well off and really celebrate it, you know, because this is a tough business. It's a tough world. I mean, hell, you know, I mean, just hanging on to any job these days is difficult no matter what you do. And to have carved out the kind of careers that these people have, man. You know, what I love about you and what I suspect a lot of us love about you is the fact that, as you say, you've managed to create relationships with people over the years who haven't let anyone else. I mean, you know, people people let down their guard with you who wouldn't even dream of saying boo to, to uh, many, if not any, other reporters. And that's, you know, uh, I think that's a rare and great gift and, and perhaps the truest testament there is to your talent as a journalist and as a conversationalist. I want to toss out a few names and just tell me the first thing that pops in your mind. Uh, Justin Dees. Oh, a teddy bear. He he came off so crusty and tough <laughs> and don't get in my space and impossible, and he was just a cupcake. He was just the sweetest guy. I remember one time it was, I was still doing Soap Digest, and I went. I mean, it was funny. This was, it was, this was a funny interview. I went to the set, and he didn't ever do interviews back then, but there was this phenomenal lady, Mary Anderson, who was the publicist back there. And, you know, the Dobsons and that whole show. Was just, I mean, they were just a complete bunch of coconuts, you know. So it was like anything goes. So they would never think about – I mean, somebody might go like, oh, Justin, he doesn't even talk to me. How can I go get him to talk to you? But Mary Anderson goes, okay, I'm going down the hall. You know, if you don't hear from me, call the cops, but I'm going to go ask him. And for some whack reason, he said yes. So I go over to the set. We do, you know, we we're in his interview. He's doing, we're, you know, we start to talk. He pulls out his checkbook and he starts to balance his account. And it kind of just went on from there, you know. I mean, he chased clothes several times. I mean, he just like, I mean, it was like he clearly didn't want to be interviewed, but he did it, and he was a pro. And every time I ever asked him later, he always said yes. You know, he was. He was a he loved his mother so much, and it meant she didn't matter to him. He didn't care if he was, you know. I mean, if, uh, he was another one. I think if it was a career all dried up Tuesday, he wouldn't have given a crap. But he was so wanting to please his mom, and she was so thrilled with him. And I remember one time I called him, and I still stick by this: the greatest actor that Soaps had known. And he said that meant so much to his mother, who then died not that long later. And wow. I, just, I had him for li- I had him for life after that. I mean, he was just my BFF forever. How I wonderful! Happy, you know. So you never know what does it. But he always, always said yes. And he was again those people that don't want to talk are the ones that have so much to say. And he always. <laughs> Always deliver beautifully. I mean, he just was gold, and I, I miss him too. I mean, it's such a loss that I, I, I haven't been in touch with him for quite a while now. But just the fact that he's not, you bet, not on some great cable drama now. It's just insane. You bet. Why isn't he or chasing Broadway. zombies on The Walking Dead? For Christ's sake, you know. I mean, it's, it's, you know, he should be on Mad Men. He should be on. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's um, gold, gold. You know, we talked about her a little bit. Kim Zimmer, never boring. I love people who are never boring. That God, 
that's the thing with me. Don't don't uh, entertain the hell out of me, and I'm yours, you know. And she she is. I think she's a brilliant actress. She'd get mad at me. I love I love it pissing her off. That was always fun dealing with the backwash from that. She'd always blame me for making her say inappropriate shit she got in trouble for, you know. Yet she'd always get back on the horn every time I, you know, I I, I need her for something. She'd always do it, but she'd always, you know, curse my name. But uh, wonderful, wonderful actress who was put through the mill on that show. I mean, when you think about the indignities that they put Kim Zimmer through. And she took it like a chance. She played the hell out of it, you know? That ridiculous just, time travel story and, and all, yeah. Oh, God, remember when they made her, like, she had to shove her keister through some painting and she'd wind up in the Civil War and Wardy in England or some shit, you know? And you'd just go like, oh, my God. But she would just play it to hell and back always. And I admire that. I admire that. It's like, kind of like Eileen Davidson, you know. It's just those people that just go for it. Nothing's inside of them saying, you know, you'll look like a goofball. It's not dignified. I love that type. Robin Strasser. Oh my God, Strasser. Um, You've had some doozies with her over the years too. Oh, I have. I have. She got mad at me because I remember when she left One Life to Live, and then they hired Elaine Princey who, let's face it, nobody's Robin Strasser, but I thought Elaine Princey made a very, very good Dorian, and I liked her personally a lot. And then when Strasser wanted her job back, she got it. And I felt really bad about that, and I wrote that in my column, you know, how wrong it was. And Robin Godlover didn't like reading that. But she called me up, and she said, I hope that someday somebody will defend me like that. Absolutely. And we proceeded to become thick as thieves and talked to her many, many times and spent a lot of personal time with her. And she's a most unique individual. And I'm sorry she's not in the game still, too. You know, I mean, it's just so wrong. You know, all these great people just needing a place to be. It's, um, and I don't know that she was, she was like a superstar in our field, but I just always kind of feel she wasn't appreciated enough in a weird way. It's not like she only has one Emmy, but, you know, I mean, but it's like, I don't know. I don't think people quite appreciated her as much as we all should. And she made her mistakes. She's known to be difficult. She's known to... You know, yes, you know, I was about to say, you, you also get the sense that some of that was her own fault because she was known yeah. to be very... Uh, maybe difficult's not the right word, but certainly exacting. Yeah, but she's good-hearted, man. She's... Sure. And so interesting on a spiritual level. I mean, we've had great spiritual talks. She's... A much bigger package than I think people people think. You know, you told a great story about him in So Over Digest years ago, and I'm hoping you'll repeat it here. Paul Roush. Tell me about Paul Roush. Ah, Roush. You I told a fabulous story in, in Digest about him years ago and about the first time you ever interviewed him. Oh, you got to remind me of this one. All I can remember <laughs> about Roush, this is the worst thing. What I remember about Roush was stomping out that goddamn stogie at the end of Santa Barbara, <laughs> putting himself on camera and snuffing out a cigar at the end of what could have been the greatest show ever on the planet. <laughs> That's what I always remember about Roush. Remind me, what, what was the story about Roush? So I know. I, I remember was... he put up the first time he put. He, he, oh, I went. Oh, 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 oh! I think I know. I know what it was. He, I had said something nice in the column about the what was it? The Sudsy? What was it? What was the, sh- the, 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 the the Daisy the, Awards? 
Daisy Awards, Daisy Awards. Which on was one life, yeah. Remarkable. It was it was just wonderfully funny, fresh, such a great spoof on soaps that weren't known for spoofing themselves back then. And I remember um, Rody Rosenzweig, who was the publicist at the time, who, who was the <laughs> restaurant Rody on uh, One Life to Live got named after. Yep. She, yep. Yep. she called me up and she said, oh, Roush is dying to meet you. He was so excited about, you know, what you wrote. He's dying to meet you. And I said, oh, okay. And so next time I was back there, I went to see him. And it was kind of like Adolf Hitler had walked in the room, meaning me. He, he looked at me like... Oh my God! What the fuck are you doing? You know, he di- he didn't give a shit. He I remember he he sat back. He was like an old school mogul. I love that about him. I mean, he was kind of like Louis B. Bear. You know, he'd sit back in his chair and puff out his chest and get out his stogie. And he didn't want to talk. He didn't have anything to say. He certainly wasn't gushing about what I'd written about in the TV Guide. And he put his feet up on the desk. I could smell his stinky socks. <laughs> And the next thing I knew, the interview was over, and I walk out of his office with Rhodey, and I'm going like, what the hell? <laughs> and, she, and she said, I mean, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, oh, my God, that went so well. I go, what yeah. are you talking about? He hated my guts. <laughs> he goes, oh, no, you don't know, Paul. That went fantastically. According Characters. to you, what she said was, when he really doesn't like you, he throws you out in two minutes instead of five minutes. Oh, right. <laughs> You know, but it was all over. Seriously, it was all over in just seconds. I mean, it was just I couldn't believe. You know, I mean, but it was. Oh. But you know, I later got to know him really well, and I really I liked the best part of Paul a lot. He too was a teddy bear. You know, he sort of acted like he didn't give a hoot about stuff, but he really did. And I remember one time I went up. I did a feature on. He did. I can't remember the name of it now, but he won an Emmy for this. It was a daytime Emmy. It was a movie, and I don't know why it got put in the daytime Emmys, but it was. But it was some uh, kind of a period uh, story. It was Sean Patrick Flannery and... Uh, yeah, it was a great movie called Run the Wild Fields. Yeah, and Joanne that used to be married to um, Val Kilmer, um, Joanne Wally. They were shooting up in Toronto, and I went up to see Paul on the set, and I was doing a story on it, and he, in a whole different element, was just... It was like seeing like a whole different side of him. First of all, it was a beautiful project. It was stunningly well done. And it was one of those opportunities to see somebody in a whole different light. And that project meant the world to him, just getting sort of a little validation outside of the soaps. And when he actually won the Emmy for it, even better, you know. But he had great possibilities, I think, far beyond even his best work in daytime. But he was cool. He was he was old school. I like old school. <laughs> in the best way. Oh, yeah. You know, the... Uh... You know, I've never really heard you or seen you speak on the record about the Pure Soap experience and, and, you know, uh, specifically about the abrupt way that that gig came to an end for you. And, and, uh, you know, I don't know if you care to discuss it now, but a lot of us would love to know what the heck happened there with that no-budget show that we all freaked over when it premiered. And all of a sudden it was just – all of a sudden it was gone. You were gone and then it was gone. Well, it would have gone anyway because of the O.J. Simpson trial. So I don't cry over that much. But what a fabulous idea that show was. I mean it was a fabulous idea. and for the time, you know, it was, let me tell you, it, um, I mean, I'm generally speaking a pretty fearless person, but nothing makes you that way than doing live television. 
and especially on a low budget, because so much shit can go wrong and does. I'm not talking about live television like Good Morning with Kelly and Michael or whatever, you know. I mean, that kind of live television. I'm talking about E back in the day. I'm not talking yeah. about E. Uh, he's kind of podunky now, but I mean, yeah. E back in the day was like, oh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, it started out with all the promise in the world, and they put me together with Shelley Taylor Morgan, who was a friend, actually, at that point. And things just didn't gel well with us personally and tried my damnedest for that not to appear on air but there was see that surprises me because it seemed like you two were great pals on air i mean it it seemed like it totally worked uh, from what we saw at home i mean that's called being a pro and and not letting the behind the scenes shit get on the camera but there was a lot of competitiveness on her part i will say and I knew my stuff forwards and backwards because it's what I did. And she was an actress from GH primarily in days and just kind of coming to it from a different vantage point, which I think was very valuable. But I kind of found myself becoming a threat and network politics being what they were. They just decided that we weren't gelling and actually asked me. They wanted to restructure the show and to go into the field and do field pieces. And I thought about it, and I just felt that that was not, I think, an appropriate solution to the problem that we were having. And it was kind of funny because the day that they came to me and said it was kind of that scene in Philadelphia where Tom Hanks, you know, they were bumping around, and Tom Hanks finally said, excuse me, am I being fired? I mean, I actually had to say those lines because the executives there were having a little difficulty explaining why they were making this wackadoody decision. And there was also another element to this, too, and I won't lay this all on Shelley, and I have no hard feelings against anybody because it was a wonderful experience, and as I said, the show wouldn't have lasted, and did not last because O.J. came on and wiped it off and sure. you know, all was lost. But my opinions were not going over well with some of the shows. It was interesting that what was okay in print on camera was a different kind of thing. And E was getting a lot of shit from Ken Corday and a little bit from one of the New York soaps, and I can't even remember. So there was a little pressure coming from, you know, those arenas. And they were all kind of, oh, my God, we're E, we're the new kid on the block. We have to grovel and, you know, lick everybody's <laughs> boots. And they were kind of in that mode, you know. Oh I mean, a couple of years later, there's, you know, for crying out loud, Joan Rivers just let it all hang out. But back then, it was more about being kind of polite. So between my personal issues with Shelley and with pressure to shut me up coming from various soap entities, it was uh, I was becoming more trouble than I was worth. So their solution was to put me in the field, and therefore they could edit anything that was inappropriate, and I wasn't oh my on God. television. And I thought, you know, I mean, that, that's the wrong way to handle this. And I felt actually, I was a little rough at first. I mean, my first day was like, holy mackerel was that bad but i got good quickly and i was very proud of what i think we were both able to do on that show and we had great people come on and despite that alice in wonderland set i never quite understood um you know people would come on and really talk some really interesting stuff and we could show great clips and we had whatever the news of the day that i would get you know i mean it was a wonderful thing to be live and for as long as it lasted it was a remarkable experience and i remember the day that they sat me down and gave me the philadelphia speech i uh was our highest ratings ever and i remember it was uh, doug davidson day but then the true challenge was i still had like six more weeks, I think it was, or two months, something like that, to continue on the air knowing that I'd had my ass canned, or that I'd been offered to be the field man and didn't want sure. to do it. But basically, I consider myself fired. And they were watching me like a hawk and scared of what I was going to do, but I was a gentleman <laughs> and a 
crow the whole way and continue to deliver the goods. And I'm very proud of what was done there on, you know, a stick of gum and scotch tape. You know, I mean, it's like there was very little holding that show together, but it's... um, it was good, and for its time, I mean, it was pretty fantastic, you know. I mean, if you were to do that now, it'd have to be all glitzy and high-techy. And, but I respected the opportunity, and I thought it was really incredible to have people come on and say great stuff, and they did. So I did two more months and did my final show and gave a speech that I prepared very carefully but said everything I wanted to say. But they didn't want me to say I was fired, so I couldn't do that. So I had to just sort of be weirdly ambiguous about, you know, why I was suddenly giving this speech and it was my last wow. one, bye-bye. And then uh, they had some auditions to try to replace me and that didn't work. And then O.J. killed Nicole Simpson and there you have it. So <laughs> a lot of people on my ass. You know, I wasn't well-liked and probably still am not by a lot of people. But well, it's so funny, though, that, it's, you know, one of the things that's changed so much about the business is that, you know, back in the day, you, you uh, the press was valued. You actually sat down regularly with Bill and Agnes and Mickey Dwyer Dobbin when she was running ABC Daytime or later Procter & Gamble or Sheraton sure. when it was NBC, you know, and you, not just for interviews, but to shoot the shit and get to know each other and nurture relationships and talk shop off sure. the record. I mean, sure. now that's kind of, nobody does that anymore. I mean, Steve can't avert his eyes and runs from me at events. You know? <laughs> the, the, the GH publicist wouldn't piss on me if I was on fire. I like, you know, it's. It's like there's no – that kind of relationship – I mean, that doesn't – that day has come and gone, and, you know, it's crazy. You get by, you make do, you keep your sense of humor. But that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. You know, I mean, I could always get into a good knockdown, drag-out fight with Mickey Dwyer Dobbin, and um, <laughs> we'd always kiss and make up and go again, you know? I mean, people got the importance of maintaining a relationship. They got the public relations part. Right. And some people didn't, you know, I mean, I uh, some people wouldn't deal with me for years. And Jimmy Riley didn't get it. Oh, you know, when I heard that uh, Satan was coming to Salem, I thought it was the end of civilization as we know it. <laughs> and I said so. Yes, and Riley, <laughs> Riley put out the, you know, the word that I was to be hard and feathered and pilloried in the town square, but we got over that. And um, Well, you know, you and Ken Corday have had some notorious rows before. You and Jill Phelps have had notorious rows before. Well, you know, it's called being a mature adult. You get over it, <laughs> isn't it? I miss the people that have the life experience. So many times you just sort of feel like the people running these shows haven't lived lives. That's why Bill could write a great show, because he lived a great life. Sure. It's got to come from somewhere. You know, I miss that breed. You know, this is one of the... so pathetic. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the old days. I should be sitting on my porch rocking while I'm talking to you. You know, one of the uh, one of the raps on you from your peers and your competitors, and you know, I don't think I'm breaking any news here, but you know, one of the one of the uh, one of the knocks on you, I think, is that you love stirring up little hornets' nests of controversy, and that you live for the incendiary newsmaking quote. And, of course, you know, you've printed a million of those in, in, in the course of 25 years. I mean, I think of, I think of uh, you know, Mickey Dwyer Dobbin calling Michael Zaslow a wheezing little old man in your column. I think of Felicia Bear calling One Life to Live Unwatchable in an interview that rocked the whole soap world. I think of Mimi Torsen calling Ken Corday a horse's ass. You know, not to say that you intentionally goad people into saying things that maybe they shouldn't, but do you think that just goes with the territory, or do you indeed get a little extra thrill out of knowing exactly what's going to rattle a few cages? Oh, it's always a little of both. I mean, it, you never know what's going to come out of people. I remember when Mickey said that, which was a very unfortunate thing. 
And she got pilloried for that quote. Some people never forgave her for that quote. And rightly so. But I remember, like it was just yesterday, when Mickey said that, I said, Mickey, are you on the record with that? (laughs) I got her on tape, and she said, yes, I am on the record with that. Rare is the – I don't even know – I mean, every once in a while, you know, you're talking to somebody and then they go, okay, off the record, I got to tell you, you know, what the hell happened on the site yesterday, blah, blah, blah. And then they start talking about something else. You go, okay, are we on back on the record now? That will happen a lot in an interview. I don't think I've sure. ever stopped somebody after the quote of the millennium. And as cruel as it was and as inappropriate as it was, but I don't think I have ever stopped somebody and say, okay, are you on the record with that wow. specific statement? And they said yes, because my saying that would normally scare the crap out of somebody else and go, oh, no, maybe I better not say that. But Mickey was, Mickey was, that's where Mickey was at that time. And she is a lovely lady. She is a remarkable lady, and I've spent many, 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 many great times with her, and I think the world of her, and it was a lapse in judgment, but it happened, you know, it happened. Which gets us back to that question we kind of talked about earlier. I mean, do you, you know, do you owe people to save their ass, or when they say something, you bet that they fully intend to say? Do you put it out there and just are you the judge and the jury? No, really, you're not. You're the reporter. You're the one in between. You're, it's not your job primarily to be slicing and dicing the incendiary stuff out of a talk. You know, listen. If I say something, I will live to regret. I am not going to blame you. <laughs> And I probably have half a dozen times in the course of our little chat here. I'm not going to blame you. That's not the way shit works. I said it. I'm a grown adult. Nobody's got a gun to my head. I'm fully responsible. And, you know, if my peers who say this are truthful about it, they'd probably damn well wish they had gotten the quote themselves and wouldn't have hesitated for a moment to do it. Um, you know, I and I and I don't say that as, as a, I don't say that as a criticism, and I don't think they said it as a criticism either. But it has, I mean, over the years, I have seen multiple of your peers and competitors and and uh, rivals, if you want to look at it that way, say that about you. And you know, I just wonder if you take that at face value, and if you take that about yourself. I we all love to stir up stuff, you know, and we just do it. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the name of the game. I mean, you, sure. you have to be noticed. If you're not writing to be noticed, why are you writing? Of course. You know, I could go be a cucumber farmer on a hill in Colorado if I don't want to be noticed. That's not what I do. You want to make your mark. I'm here now because I've consistently made a mark. That's what you do if you want to stay in business. I don't know any other way to do it. Is it sometimes cheesy and sideshow? I don't know. Maybe it is. Off the top of my head, I can't think of a regret. Because sometimes, you know, the heat of the moment makes it go, oh, shit, maybe we shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but when some time passes, wouldn't you really have rather had a record of how it all went down? Wouldn't you really have rather had the truth instead of somebody's version of the baloney? When the shit's hitting the fan, it, it can get uncomfortable, and you might wince a time or two, but all things pass, and with a little time, you look back very differently on things. And I don't. I don't think anything. Um, I don't regret anything. And even, even the Mickey Dwyer Dobbins comment, which I think is in a category of its own. I think sometimes we need somebody to say stupid things because it makes us realize how far we haven't come, and how far we need to go, and what is really more important. When something bad happens to an actor, is it the show, is it the character, or is it that human being? I think on the spiritual plane, 
those are really kind of our angels, not the people that come on. You know, it's like the people in life that tell you you're fabulous <laughs> and you're wonderful and kiss your yeah. ass. Those aren't the people that change your life. It's the person that comes along and says, uh-uh, not good enough. You got it. The person that comes along and criticizes you severely, as hard as it may be to take. That's why on Twitter, you know, people always talk about, oh, I'm blocking your ass. You know, I block nobody on Twitter because and people do say horrible things to me, but it is so important to remember not only that you're not everybody's cup of tea, but that there are people out there that just might, even couched in some harsh language and criticism, might be actually telling some truth. And you might benefit from knowing you're not God's gift to the soap world, that (laughs) not everybody likes what you bring to the party. Hard as it is, that's really important to do. So when I look back at something like that, I see great value in that. It's like anything. You know, we don't make strides as human beings if that clown didn't beat up his wife in the elevator and then suddenly everybody's talking about domestic violence, as we should. Sure. It takes things like that to happen. So that's the way I see it. You know, it's it's uh, it, it's no secret that TV Guide, like pretty much every other magazine in the marketplace, is trying to figure out the best way to navigate a digital future and still churn out a physical tactile product week on week. And, you know, I have this sense that that uh, you and Matt Roush and Battaglio and, you know, all you guys who have, who have toiled so brilliantly in your racket for years on years, I feel like all of you are now forced to constantly be looking over your shoulders and wondering when the inevitable other shoe is going to drop. You know, uh, I... Uh, I can't even imagine. I can't even fathom a world without a regular dose of Michael Logan in it, and and I'm wondering if the evolving instability in your industry forces you to constantly be evaluating your options. No, not at all. I am really happy today in this moment, and that's where I stay. Worry about tomorrow, not in a foolish sort of way, but I trust that I personally have built up enough good work that somebody out there must want me. And in the worst case scenario that nobody out there wants me, I would actually consider that a very opportune thing because I've still got a third act in me. And in a great play, the third act is always the best. So I, I think like, fabulous. what next? You know, what next? So I don't get crazy about that kind of thing. And it's not to say I wouldn't miss TV Guide. And all of this wonderfulness, but it's been really great and nothing is forever. Now, that said, we just had a revamp and we've added a bunch of pages of content and we're hanging in there. You know, no magazine's doing gangbusters business that we used to, but sure. we're, we're hanging in and I've, you know, I've never had more work in my life. It's a very busy time because of fall and we've just done three back-to-back fall preview issues and, 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 and it's been, you know, extremely busy and there's never been more television and more exciting stuff to write about. So I um, I think we're here for a nice long while. Now, the business does continue to change. I think about, as we all do, you know, what if the soap's dried up completely? What would you do? Of well, course. I'd just do something else, and I would mourn them. But if that's what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. You just can't do life that way. I think you just have to prepare for the best. I've been very, very fortunate for all these years, and I would be fine if I didn't do another job ever. I wouldn't want that because the point of being on this planet if you're not kicking some ass and contributing you bet. something. But, um, <laughs> you bet. But I, you know, I don't know. And I can't speak for my cohorts. I mean, but Matt's a magnificent 
writer and Bataglia is a phenomenal reporter and these people will all have a place and we all have spectacular things to show people if anybody wants to know what we do. And cha- you know, and yet change comes. Change is inevitable and change is good and you know, you just have to be ready in this world and roll with it. I feel like change, like the people that do bad things in this world that you actually derive some good from, you learn lessons from. I think change is like, you know, I sometimes think, you know, because I'm not about to walk from TV Guide. I'm not a horse's ass. I'm not going to quit. But if it quit me, it would be the best thing that happened because I'd just get on to something else that might not ever happen if I did another 25 years at TV Guide. And I think that's the only way to look at life because otherwise it gets too scary. It's too, oh, my God, how'd you get out of bed in the morning if you're worrying about all that stuff? You can't, you know. You know, I tell you, a lot of us, I think, would love to see a, a MichaelLogan.com where you just hang out your own shingle and just start scooping the hell out of everybody. Oh, listen, you know, this is a very different world now. You know, when I was doing the, the great, great years of TV Guide, I was kind of, I was living in a very different world. I mean, now with social media, with all the blogs, with everybody's a critic, everybody knows better, everybody's got a better way to do it. A lot of what I did really well doesn't have a place anymore, and I'm I'm fine with that. You know, I mean, I'm not sad about it or bitter about it. I mean, it's just the world's changed, and in a lot of ways for better. But voices don't matter when everybody's got one. You know, but I love all the activity. I love, you know, of course I want to scoop other people, and I get pissed when somebody scoops me. That's just part of the that's part of being in the game. You know, it's still giving a crap. You know, you care about that, but it's just turned into something nobody could have expected, and um, it's very interesting to ponder where it might go. You know, uh, an entire generation of us literally lived our lives for your classic Tuesday night online chats on the old TV Gen website. And, you know, I still rue the day that that those went away. Uh, You know, I I know I've asked you this on Twitter before, but have you ever or would you ever consider bringing that notion back on a regular basis in the social media age, either as a Facebook chat or as a Twitter thing or, you know, something along those lines? Would you ever consider doing something like that again? Oh, sure. I, I, you know, I, I would absolutely consider it. But I have to say, I dropped out of that when, you know, we were doing it. I had, I think they signed me to like a year contract to get the web stuff going. And we did the live chats, which were exhilarating, but really so exhausting. Fun. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I had to lay down after those were over because yeah. it, was, it, was, it was, it takes, it takes a lot out of you, you know, it really does. It's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. It's a very, very weird thing. And, you know, I did some good extensive interviews and we had, uh, I think we had an Ask Logan column or something like that. I had three things. And I just, you know, kept it up and did it for a full year. And I said, you know, on top of all the other TV Guide work, and I just sure. couldn't do it anymore. And I just, at that point, TV Guide was very, I mean, we were one of the first out there. I mean, it was kind of new then. And I don't think any of us knew what we were doing. and, and then it Or was, where it was going. Somebody bought somebody, and then somebody bought them, and then next thing you know, I mean, now we have this crazy thing where TVGuide.com and TVGuide Magazine both share a website, and it's really theirs. It's not ours. We're just sort of like the country cousins they don't like, and, you know, it's never settled into something um, quite right, but you just, you know, you just keep going, and, it, and the business is such that it's like the soaps coming on the internet. They failed for many, many reasons, but they also, I think, had to fail because they were first. It's like the first pioneers crossing the prairie. They didn't make it. Many, many more shows down the line will be doing that normally, and it'll be everyday business. So we don't know what's coming. I know nobody could have imagined the explosion of Netflix, for crying out loud, you know, the original productions they're doing. Suddenly Netflix is winning Emmys. What? Nobody saw that except the people that made it happen, you know, and, and so who knows where we'll be. And now you've got we'll Amazon be. getting into the original content game. You've got yeah. all these other AT&T and all these other companies yeah. uh, kind of aggressively pursuing that whole lane of traffic. 
So all you can do is just get up and do your thing, whatever your thing is today, and walk the dog, have your dinner, and <laughs> call it a day, you know? <laughs> it's, it's really that simple. Tell me what you're looking forward to this fall in terms of the soap game. I, I mean, I'm sure that, uh, you know, Billy Miller's coming to GH. It's gonna, I think it's going to be a ringer. I think Justin Hartley's going to be a ringer on YNR. Uh, what are you looking forward to in terms of, uh, you know, the storyline developments? One I'm really, really looking forward to is the return of Mr. Geary to GH. Do you know who Fluke is? Well, yes, I do. <laughs> Next question. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. No, I, am, I, I, am, I, I think I think Tony has moved. I, you know, I, I think the world of that guy, personally, professionally, just a wonder. I just think he's going to deliver some really spectacular stuff, as he did right before he left when he was playing sure. the opposite himself. You know, I mean, that if that wasn't another Emmy, Emmy number forty-three, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what is. And are all um, the clues there, or is it going to be a total shocker? Oh, I don't know. You know, I mean, it, I don't think Carl Lavati, whom I he makes me crazy, but I admire him deeply <laughs> and adore him personally. I don't know that clues are all that important to him. <laughs> he's going to do what he's going to do. So we're going to take it or not. You know, I but, mean, we've uh, all been kind of we've all been kind of parsing the dialogue, trying to figure out who Fluke is, and I'm just wondering if the clues have been there all the time, or if we're just going to be totally stunned by the answer. I don't know that I would say the clues have been there so much, but that it will track. It will uh, in the wacky world of soaps make sense. <laughs> you know what I'm going to miss so much is the exit of Sammy and EJ on days. I know you want to hear the highlights of the fall, but <laughs> all I can think of the doom and gloom coming. I think that's going to be you, a huge one. You loss. know, you look at that show, and you sure hope they have a plan, because Eileen's not there for very long. Allie's going. Yeah. There's going to be a yeah. massive hole in that canvas if they don't yeah. come up with something quick. But they do enough right. They do enough great over there that I have faith they've figured out. Sure. Something and had some time to do it too. It wasn't like Beverly taking her hike. You know, I mean, this this this, this came with warning, and yeah. and there's no excuse that they don't cover this completely beautifully. But yeah, it's going to be great to see Billy Miller on there, and Hartley I think is a very interesting choice, and he's done some super work in prime time, and it'll be different. And I just hope people can cut him a break. It's so tough, you know. It's so t- I I don't know how anybody coming into the, although Hartley has soap experience, but when you look at like. Burgess or any of these people that are coming in and haven't done this work. It's so hard, and I think people are so quick to judge, and I'm guilty of that sometimes too. But like I'm looking at, I'm looking at Phyllis, and I'm going like, already I want Phyllis to go away. And I'm going like, Logan, shut the fuck up. Let's just play out. Let's see where this is going. But I don't like what I see so far, you know, and we make our snap judgments. We are consumers. We're entitled to do that. We shouldn't be asked to be patient while we watch stuff that's not very good while a show gets its act together. That should not be part of the equation. But too many people have made it part of the equation. Bill Bell would have never asked you to do that. Douglas Marlin would never ask you to sit there and watch while he got his shit together. That's just not the way it was done. Now it's quite commonplace. I just hope everybody just gives everybody a chance, and I'm going to try to do the same. Pratt included. Chuck Pratt included. You know, you mentioned Phyllis, and and I think I think Gina's way too young for that role, which is going to be a problem. But I, you know, I, I just I keep waiting for them to just let her rip and let her do her thing, and then I think it's going to be fine. I don't think they've done her any service because when you remember the great Dinah stuff, some of which was really out there. I mean, there's no reason Gina can't act this sure. and give. And you know, she was too young for that role too, oh, and okay, it worked exactly. out fine. Exactly. You know, but it also speaks, I think, to the you know, I, I there's something wrong with Phyllis not coming on like Gangbusters. I wanted to see Phyllis, the first time we see her, 
<laughs> walk in on that damn wedding. <laughs> it's lost its punch. It's lost its power. First of all, the coma, which is a very hard thing to sustain any interest in. And the weeks have gone by. And then there's the trip to Genoa City. And now she's wandering around people's houses wearing clothes she got who knows where. Not saying a word. Not saying a word, you know. And it's like, this is dead drama. This is dead drama. And I think this actress is not being served well by the material. And hopefully we will get to that point where she is. And we will forget all about all of this. And we will just get on (laughs) with a wonderful, wonderful storyline. Because God knows the return of Phyllis should be complete combustion. Not only busting Sharon... But whatever the hell she's going to do to Kelly, and I hope it's huge <laughs> and terminal, you know, you know, I mean, there's a lot, a lot to be done with that. So let's hope that they make that happen in a wonderful way. But, you know, this is what I admire about Carla Vati. That show is on fire. You know, it feels like something big happens on that show every day. Even if it doesn't, it feels like it does every single day. It feels like and you have keeping, to watch and, every single episode of that show. Yeah. And wonderful surprises, many of which they're managing to keep until we see them on air, which is maddening to someone such as myself looking for a scoop. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, but this is the old way it used to be done. And that's got everybody not wanting to miss a day. And that's what you want. And I admire it. I admire it. And I understand the complaints. I do. I can see why it's not going over well with some folks, but I love it. You know, Riley used to say, like, why, you know, why does soaps all have to be the same? He always compared them to restaurants. You know, you want Chinese, you go over here. You want Italian, you go here. Instead of being kind of variations on sort of the same kind of thing, why, why not have them? Be, which, which I think, and I've always loved, I hated as the mob stuff is on General Hospital, I always thought that that helped set that show apart in a very interesting and vital way. And yeah, a lot of people don't like it, but a lot of people clearly have because it's still hanging in and they're doing, I remember when you know, Carl Lovati and Valentini took over the show and was going, oh, okay, we're going to get rid of the mob stuff. They've got more mob now <laughs> than Guza ever dreamt of having. And they really kill people. I mean, for years we didn't know what exactly Sonny Corinthos trafficked yeah. in. You know, it was like the illegal tchotchkes or something, you know. I mean, it's like, you know, I mean now leading people kill people unforgivably, and they keep moving on, you know. That, I think, is true. And they, that's the best new, boldest thing that's gone on with soaps. Not that everybody in primetime is not doing the same damn thing. Sure. But that, you know, you could have Sonny Corinthos kill AJ. And sure. And so wrong. And Sonny's still a vital character. Or Ava can do what she's done and still stay on the canvas, because there used to be a day where if you did something like that, they'd have to get rid of you. I find that very intriguing to watch how Carlo Vati's making that work. I find it riveting how he's keeping killers not only on the front burner but have us liking them you know you look at somebody like valentini and you know he's seemingly pulled off the same kind of miracle that gloria monte did 35 years ago in saving a television institution seemingly single-handedly i mean granted he hasn't done it in nearly the same sort of cultural glare that that uh that gloria did it was just different times back then but how is history going to judge someone like valentini or someone like carlovati I mean, are they going to judge them on the on the Monty scale, or or is it just different? Is it a different scale this time? I think it's a different world this time. When Gloria did what she did, which was still kind of hard to believe, really, things were still young. Soaps were hot, you know. Or she made that one the hottest thing going. There was so much more a vital part of the entertainment world. So saving an institution meant something. Shows have been saved a lot of times since then. You know, I mean, I consider any show still on the air today has been saved, considering <laughs> you know, when we lost four. No, when we lost those four back-to-back shows, 
You bet. You know, I mean, it, they've all been saved, so you're kind of only new ones. You know, I mean, I don't know that this packs the punch. And we're not talking about the same numbers either. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what's save, what's saving a show yeah. now? A couple hundred thousand viewers can save a show. Brian Franz went away, too, you know, so it's not like <laughs> the Hatchet Man's regime saw the light thanks to Valentini, and then we saved the show. A new team came in that was having its own incredible struggles trying to develop new programming, reality programming. They came on like gangbusters. This is the new daytime TV world and couldn't produce anything that stuck. <laughs> Except the Chew. The Chew was hung in there. Let's give them credit for that. But the other things that they've attempted or the many pilots that they shot were unsuccessful. So their lack of success has a great deal to do with staying patient with General Hospital, which simultaneously was getting better by leaps and bounds. There's, you know, you can't much of a stew to pick out any one ingredient and go, okay, that's why this is tasty. And and Valentin, God love him, he does great work and he's pulled together the show in remarkable fashion. But I would credit more the lack of the network coming up with suitable substitutes for them just taking a pause and in so doing. And 50th anniversary was a very big deal for that show. And I think that the network saw great potential through that and that they brought back the old guard and honored the past and honored the fans that they could have a very successful show. The two things were going on at once. And and listen, Gloria, talk about a show woman. Gloria weaved her own legends. She sold it, how she saved the show, and she did, but she made that a big story so that we all paid attention. You shout it from the rooftops. So somebody would have to be doing that, and I don't think anybody really cares at this point. I mean, it just, it just, we're so grateful that there's four still hanging in, and we're just biding our time and hoping nothing will collapse again, and some crazy person won't take over the network daytime division. <laughs> and it's small blessings time. Yay, we made it through another season. Yay, that's where we're at, and that's good enough. That's good enough. As much as I love these shows, I don't know that they should be surviving if they're not going to be really good. As much as I love them and as much as we love them, and, and, you know, it's one thing to have a very romantic attachment to these shows, and, you know, if they go, then there goes my youthhood, and there goes an institution, and there goes a lot of people's best friend in the daytime, you know, and all that kind of stuff. All that's meaningless if the show's not any good. And let me tell you, in prime time, nobody would get away with the stuff they get away with in daytime. Nobody would ever let a show be run into the ground like this. Nobody would ever hire back the devil. Nobody would ever, (laughs) ever let people (laughs) at the network level be calling the primary creative shots. You hire great writers, you hire great producers, and you stand back and let them do their thing. Yes, all networks are involved in their productions and they have a say-so, and some more than others, but there's a place of trust. That's the way it is. You don't you don't keep giving people the jobs that have failed a thousand times before and just invite them back again. You don't do that. A big part of the problem with soaps is there's been no entree. You know, there's been no logical way to get into this business as a writer. You get off the bus from Kansas City and you want to be in animation. There are ways to break into that world. You want to go work for Disney. There are ways to do that. You want to break into sitcoms. There are ways to get into the business. People do it all the time. Those parts of the business love nothing better than the next hot talent sure you know they're all dying for the new guy in town to be the one not our soap world it is shut down it is so private i can't tell you how many times over the years i have sent really remarkable qualified wonderful people that could write for this medium and they can't even get a meeting they can't get a trial wow it's very protective and the same people keep their jobs 
there's a reason why an R sounds so boring is you've, you, you, you've got the same people who have done it for too long. There's a shake-up factor. You need to be shaken up as a writer. Carlovati's work is so much better at General Hospital than it was in the final years of One Life to Live. You know, he needed that shaking up. As bad as the sure. circumstances were, the cancellation, the Prospect Park, all the crap. Look what he did with Prospect Park alone and that mess and his ability to just go, okay, we're just going to do something crazy. We're going to take these three characters, give them new hairdos, and get them back on the damn air, calling them something else. And the audience, guess what, is going to get over it. And we did. It's you know, you sometimes got to move to that new neighborhood to shine. And Although I will tell you that I miss Todd Manning on that canvas desperately because what Roger Howarth was doing that year as Todd on General Hospital was just exemplary. And this whole Franco thing is still, it's rough. Well, listen, I hated this a lot and to my sadness said so and caught hell for it. But, you know, the thing is, is that... that um, yes, you did. <laughs> It's coming around, and I think he's in a much more interesting place. I almost, in a way, just, you know, I don't, I, I, it's weird. Every once in a while, somebody will call him Franco, and I go, oh, that's right, he's Franco, because in my mind, he's just, he's, he's Todd again, and I'm fine with that. And I'm not so sure they don't think the same thing back there with the right in the show. It's yeah. just a character. We just call him something different, and Prospect Park, and, you know. You know, I, I, I will tell you that but, you know. I will tell you that that mixing him up with Stafford has done a world of good for that character oh, and for Rogers' yeah. morale, I think incredible and it's always a story twist too you know i hated it with those two days where they had him out being an artist in the park and i didn't understand what was going on and car him and carly i thought was just a bad mix but now that he wants her dead and he wants to marry her on halloween you know i mean i'm like going like okay this is good this is good you know? so it can all flip and that's why we have to be kind of patient with some stuff and not patient with others you know because when you see mistakes happening and not being rectified back to my long diatribe with young and restless writers those people need to be shaken up we need new people writing that show not just the head writer but the dialogue is just so tired so uninteresting and when you look at all the shit that's going on in general hospital and then you look over on YNR and nothing's happening at all and they're all watching General Hospital, by the way. It's not like they're living yeah. in some boy-in-the-plastic bubble pod. Yeah. You know, they're watching that show. <laughs> and they don't see like, hey, why aren't we more like them? And it's not to say that stylistically they should become that, although they just may with crack coming in. But you got to do something to make us give a hoot. You know, you try to be understanding with these people because it is so hard. And when you get in the doldrums, it's so hard to get out. It's like the difference between losing 10 pounds and 200 pounds. It really is. 10 pounds is reasonable. You can do it. I can see how I can fix this. 200, that's another story. And um, you never know in this crazy business. I mean, soap operas are so popular in prime time. Maybe the shows that started it all could have a renaissance. You've got to hope that there is a future, but there's only a future if you've got a new generation coming in. You don't have to worry about that with actors. There are actors aplenty, but I think that there needs to be not only a new generation of writers, but severely, and this is something that never gets talked about, a new generation of directors, because there are some sad, phoned-in people holding down jobs that uh, need to be let go. I can't tell you how many times on YNR I look at that show and go, God, who directed this? You know, the problem is even is in the well, You know, when they had the big reveal, the worst one was when Nikki had to reveal that Dylan was her son in front of, you know, they were getting into a big fist fight or something with Nick or all of that. I mean, that should have been, you know, that would have been the thing you were, you know, if the great people had written this, you would have been talking about it for years. Sure. It was like so badly done. It was so awkward, so sloppy, 
so in need of three or four more takes at least, you know, because the writing was okay. It was strong enough. It was a directorial problem that lost that up. You know, as a card-carrying FOJ, I don't blame Jill for all the things that everybody else likes to blame her for, but I absolutely do blame her for the poor directorial staff over there because I think that's contributing a lot more than people realize to the sad state of the show. Oh, am I in trouble? (laughs) Except for the fact that it's true, you know. No, but you want these to be good. You know, it's it's so hard. And I know the fans, I feel for the fans too, especially the ones that really get it. It's so hard to just watch your show just slowly die. I saw that happen when Ellen Wheeler, I mean, not that the writing was already on the wall, but when Ellen Wheeler took over Guiding Light. Oh, my God. And as you say, that would never, uh, you would never see The Sopranos going to PPAC. It would never even be considered. No, no, it just would not. And the hubris of that situation still gets my goat to this day. You know, I remember being on the phone with Ellen selling the new concept and how they were going to be shooting with all these handy cams. And <laughs> people were, as we know, were getting dressed in their cars and doing their makeup in the rearview mirror. I mean, it was like the worst that they've put any actors through ever. I mean, the worst B movie gives you a real mirror to do your makeup. You know, I mean, it's like they were horrible to these people. And yet, like troopers, they got in there and tried to make it work. (laughs) But I remember Ellen saying to me, she was very fond of this because she had three quotes and gave them all to everybody, how TV cameras hadn't changed since the days of I Love Lucy. And it's about time we moved into the future. And I'm listening to this horse's ass tell me this. I'm thinking like, lady, have you ever seen I Love Lucy? It's brilliant, and nothing's been that brilliant since. And the fact that that was shot magnificently, by the way, by the cinematographer of Citizen Kane, by the way, that it still looks like a million bucks today, by the way. You should be so lucky. Anybody would in any way compare what you're doing to that show. But that was the nerve. That was the gall. That's what killed it. And Barbara Bloom hating soaps at CBS and Mickey exiting Procter & Gamble and them never replacing her. So and not they getting replaced, no, yes. Yep. Yeah, they had nobody leading the charge. Between that event, Alan Wheeler and Barbara Bloom, it went. And still I get tweets saying, Jill Farron Phelps killed Guiding Light. I love these people that weren't there, but know better. You know, you mentioned it earlier. Some people say the most horrific things to you on Twitter. I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted when I read some of the comments that you get. I mean, there's one person whom I won't name that we've both tangled with that says the most ridiculous things to you. It just, it, it, I'm flabbergasted by some of the things you feel, and you feel it with such grace and with such ease that I think is admirable. Listen, I'm 129 years old. I have rhinoceros skin. This stuff bounces off me, but most people it doesn't. It's very hurtful what people can say and say right to you. And curiously, an awful lot of these people, including the one I think you're referring to, doesn't even go by their own name. They're an anonymous chicken shed. And I probably, I remember one, one day not too long ago, Jamie Giddens and I were being attacked for some shared thought. I think it might have been. No, he hates passions. I don't think it was about passions. I don't know. It was something. I think it was Riley. I think it was Riley, but not specifically Pat. It was like Riley, Satan comes to Salem, Riley. I think we were just sort of had a little bondy sort of thing of it, and then the attacks started coming in. You oh my moron, God. you idiots, you know, you hang on. And everybody, not one of them, had their real name on their comment. And like what I say, hate what I say, want to run me over in the crosswalk, take your pick. But, you know, I put my name on what I put out there, 
and <laughs> do that proudly. And I don't have any respect for people that don't. Now, maybe the people have reasons for sitting on their beat-up couch and using fake names and saying horrible things to people, but I have no respect for anybody that does that. But I think that that speaks to our so it's drug kicking and screaming into Twitter. I just started it like a year, year and a half maybe now. I didn't see the need for it or interest in it, and I now absolutely <laughs> see the great marketing potential for it. I'm glad that I did that. But and I, aren't you I, glad that Marie Osmond shamed you into it? <laughs> well, you know, it's so weird she did. I mean, my, my great editor, Rich Sands, who's just my angel at TV Guide, to whom I owe everything and would not be there if it wasn't for him working with me and keeping me going and through the system and making it all magically happen. He tried forever to do it, and, and it is the wise, intelligent thing for people that do what I do to do, but I didn't care. And frankly, at this point, I still don't care. If I didn't do it ever again, I'd be fine. You know, I mean, it's like if I stopped today, I'd be okay. You know, I'd stop actually doing things like, oh, should I tweet that? You know, I mean, it's like when, when you're in the Twitter world, suddenly it's like everything has tweet potential, and you go, should you? Should you? Should you? Should I, go, should I tweet about that movie? Should I like say what happened on the View today? You know, it's kind of a little step closer to madness. But um, what were we talking about? Something. Oh, but so I did a few Marie Osmond shows, and one day she looked over, she took our picture, and she said, "Oh, I'm going to tweet it. What's your handle?" And I said, "Oh, I don't have one." And she seriously looked at me like I had three heads. And I go, what world am I living in where you know Marie Osmond's making me look old-fashioned? So I just thought, like, okay, I just got it. And that made me do it. And I still think I dicked around for another six weeks or something, but she was the one that shamed me into it. But I'm very glad. And it's interesting because I think it's important to understand what people are feeling, even if this is a very noisy and much smaller slice of the audience pie than I think people assume it is. But I feel for the, especially with all the bullying that goes on in this world and how this has exacerbated that and how fragile some people are and still don't have enough sense to say the hell off Twitter. You know, I mean, it can be so hurtful to people. And I just don't understand it. And I just kind of, as I said, I don't bounce people, but I don't engage either. And you just sort of hope, you know, because I've had some real enemies on Twitter that's kind of went away, you know. I think if you don't poke the snake, it won't bite you, you know. So maybe, uh, watch, I'm giving away all my secrets here now, though, all the afternoon, but... No, but I, you know, I, I just think everybody's just trying their best in a very difficult world, Brandon. Don't you think? I mean, it just every day gets harder to get through and more complicated. And for whatever social media gives certain people that need to strike out, it gives them that opportunity. And it's sad that they take it, but maybe our greater job is to figure out a way to deal with it because it's, it's the way it is, and it's the future. You're going to get this wherever you go. This is our new world, so stopping being on Facebook or something isn't going <laughs> to... Isn't going to um, make that problem go away, yeah. Yeah, you know, your life does not instantly become rainbows and unicorns, you know. I mean, we're living in a hard, <laughs> hard, hard, hard world. It really is. You know, you just have to have compassion for people and figure, like, okay, you don't know what they're going through. You don't know what their life has been. You don't know why they're doing this. It ain't right, but it is. And send them a little prayer. I've said too much. <laughs> oh, I've well, been, talking, you know, been talking 14 years now. I mean, Jesus. Oh. You know, I, I, you know I, I, I told you that I was only going to need an hour of your time, and I've already been here for two hours and 20 minutes. So Yeah, well, I'll get two hours all... of that is completely useless. It should be discarded immediately. Trust me. Trust me. But yeah. I tell you what, you know, I, you know, I uh, – a big part of the reason why I do what I do here on my little ragtag dog and pony show is because of the excellence of your example. And, you know, I can't tell you what this conversation has meant to me, and I can't tell you what a thrill this was. I really mean it. 
thank you so much. I'm very touched that you gave a hoot, and it's just you know it's remarkable, and so it's kind of good to walk down memory lane. And you know, I was I was flabbergasted well, that you weren't making lane's it much sharper than mine. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I was I was stunned that you weren't making a bigger deal of your anniversary than you were, and uh, you know, I saw it coming on the calendar, and I wanted to mark it in some way, and so I uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you agreeing to go down that road with me. Well, I don't damn play 25 years. That's really incredible. But at the same time, I kind of think, oh, Logan, shut up. Do your job. Do you have something to write? Do you have something to do? Do you have a column, dude? Do you have a, do you have a interview with Jane Elliott about getting her hair done by Deidre Hall? Stuff people really give a shit about in this world, you know? <laughs> Sharon Farrell. Remember Sharon Farrell? Brilliant, brilliant actress. Crazy as a loon. Wonderful, wonderful person. And I remember when she came on Weinar and I did a piece on her, and I can't remember how the, what the topic was, but she was just talking about how it's ridiculous to get full of yourself and think there's what you're doing is more important than the next person and that kind of thing. And she said to me, it was my favorite quote ever. She said, "We're all just bozos on the same bus," and I loved it. It just says what life really is, you know. It just we're all just doing our best, and life goes on, you know. We're not saving the environment here. We're not curing disease. Just the goofy old soap opera. People used to get pissed at me. Well, I probably still do when I say that. But, you know, it's like, let's keep this in perspective. It's just goofy, fun programming. When it gets important and it gets wonderful, yahoo. But, you know, bottom line, it's just entertainment. It's a way to pass some time and forget your troubles and have a good time of it. That's all it is. Well, thank you very much. I'm really honored to be grilled by you, and I'm getting a restraining order as soon as I get off the call. You better, because as I told you, I consider you, myself you, the world's leading, world leading Loganologist. And, and I don't even have all of my writing in my garage, so it's like, this is like frightening me. This is, but no, I'm really, I'm very touched, and uh, thank you for remembering the 25th. It's fun to talk about this stuff, it really is. Few people want to take the time to do that, and uh, we got to keep the past alive, you know? You know, in a 1997 interview with a long-defunct publication called Soap Opera Magazine, Michael Logan put it as simply as I've ever heard it put. He said, for a reporter and a critic, power is using one's forum to applaud the brilliance, condemn the crap, defend the underdogs, and unspin the spin doctors. He also, in that same interview, said, what I am proudest of is that in my own way and with my own outlet, I make this business, the business of soap, important. I couldn't say that better myself, nor will I try to. I'll just say, you know what, Logan? I'm still looking for that process server to turn up on my doorstep with that restraining order kind, sir. Other folks in my enviable position might take offense to that, but not me, brother. I'd be nothing short of honored. You are the best, sir, and thank you so damn much for giving Brandon's Buzz the 100th episode of my dreams. You know, 100 of these things, it's... it's uh. You know, it's probably not so impressive on the face of it, but what can I say? It feels impressive tonight. You should know that I know that it's quite possible that I'm the only person on earth who cares about the answers to any of the questions you heard during this conversation tonight and during the 99 conversations that have preceded this night. And if that's indeed the case, all I can tell you is the show is called Brandon's Buzz for a reason and that this program is fundamentally by design constructed around my curiosity. This project hit the air six years ago next month, and as I've told you several times previously, that first episode with the great Bob Kremer had a total audience of 17 people. 17 people. That's one seven. I didn't say 17,000 people. I said 17. 
you know, as I record this on a crisp December night, nearly six years beyond that auspicious debut, some 150,000 of you have seen fit to take a chunk of time out of your lives to allow at least one of these episodes, one of these 100 episodes, to fill your silences. As I often say, it's hard sometimes not to feel as though I create this ramshackle operation known as Brandon's Buzz in a vacuum, but it's moments like this when I'm reminded that there are actually people out there, lots of them indeed, who dig what I do here, and I honest to God can't tell you what that means to me. I could sit here until the rapture trying to express my gratitude, and I feel like I've done just that with this rambling proscript, believe me. Uh, you know, I'd never even get close to capturing the full extent of my appreciation for you, all of you who listen and who take what I do here seriously. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, I've said this before, but it bears repeating, particularly on a night like tonight. It's not possible to turn out a great product in a forum like this without great guests. I work very hard to construct a program on which I can be uniformly proud to have my name appear, and that starts 99.9997% of the time with the guest, him or herself. I'm on the email list of a number of publicity firms and agencies, and I do get pitched a fair number of guests and interview topics, and I accept very few of them, far fewer than I should probably in an ideal set of circumstances, because quite frankly, my time is very precious to me, and it's spread across a number of professional and personal obligations and pursuits, and the number of man hours it takes me to prepare for and record and edit and create an installment of this program is such that uh, you know I find myself unwilling to devote any time to subjects on which or whom I am not rabidly passionate in learning more about, period, the end. Perhaps that makes me a perfectly awful host, and if that's the case, so be it. But I'll tell you, I look back over this list of 100 episodes, and while I wouldn't necessarily call any of them exceptionally brilliant, I can count on one hand the number of these episodes that I would call outright clunkers. That starts with great guests, and win, lose, or draw, that's precisely what I've had to play with across six years and across 100 episodes here. And so, as ever, my biggest thanks go to the monumentally magnificent people from Bob Krimmer to Gordon Thompson to Maya Bialik, from Beth Maitland to Nia Peoples to Pam Long to Brett Claywell, from Cale Brown to Lucy Arnaz to Meat Loaf to uh, Susie Betso Horgan, from Jeff Giles to Linda Dano to Hillary Bailey Smith to Michael Logan, who received my letters, recognized the obvious passion contained therein, and took a chance on this true labor of love called Brandon's Buzz. Even if this all comes crashing to a halt tomorrow, it's not, but even if it did, these 100 conversations have been among the proudest, most fun, most amazing moments of my whole lifetime. It has been a great thrill to be an active participant in these conversations, and it has been an equally great thrill to share them with all of you who come here to seek them out. You know, if you're here already, then you clearly know how to find the show. But in case you don't, one more time, three places online, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. It really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. From there, you can see what's on the show, what has been on the show, what is coming on the show. You can leave comments. You can send emails. It really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it is blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. That takes you to a full radio archive. A full entire listing of every episode of this show is in the radio archive at Brandon's Buzz. This is episode number 100. This and all previous 99, all available in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com.
You can also find me on iTunes, guys. I'm on iTunes. Can you believe it? Type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on my Puzzle Piece Colorful logo. From there, that takes you to a full listing of every episode of this show, which you can download as individual uh, podcasts, MP3 podcasts, for playback on the device where you're choosing, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they show up in the store. So listen, I'm all over the place. I'm and and listen, it's it's great stuff. I'm on iTunes, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm all over the place. Google the words, Bing the words, Yahoo the words, Brandon's Buzz, and something will pop up that points you in my direction. And as always, I'm telling you for the one hundredth time I could not be more thrilled that you have come here and you have found this, and I hope you continue coming here and finding Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind, so spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check hey it out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Better when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. <laughs> 